So I'm speaking this morning about relationships with a purpose, okay? And you heard, heard Gukle mention that as well. And this is a phrase that I shared yesterday. I said, I love this little explanation and definition of what discipleship is, relationship with a purpose. And I want to unpack the two dimensions to this, relationships, okay, and purpose. And I want to just this morning focus on the dimension of relationships. And um, before we go, before we just move on, I want to highlight the importance of discipleship. So why do we do it? Because Jesus told us in this verse, Matthew 28 verse 19, he said, Now go in my authority and make disciples and I will be with you. Folks, what does Jesus do with all this authority that the Father has given to him? He delegates it to you and me to invest our lives with authority, with power, with anointing in other people, that his life may be transferred into other people, that people may become more like Jesus. You and I, as we follow Jesus, there's an anointing. He says, I will be with you for you to do this thing. You know, so many people say, oh Lord, are you with me? I need you with me. Folks, when you are investing in other people for the sake of Christ and for the sake of his kingdom. He is with you. His presence is there. His Holy Spirit is giving you things to say. He's anointing you to impart the life of Christ, to impart faith that brings life into people. There's an anointing right over there. So let's move on. I'm going to share three quotes from three different guys. The first one is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Dietrich said this about discipleship. Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. Now that's quite a radical statement. I've got a picture there of Dietrich and you say, well, he looks a bit <coughs> grumpy. Why is he so grumpy? Folks, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is an amazing man of God. He, in 1933, when Adolf Hitler came to power in Germany, he went on the radio two days after Adolf Hitler came to power. And he spoke prophetically to the German people over national radio. And he warned them about idolizing Adolf Hitler. While he was speaking, the Nazis cut off the radio broadcast. In the, when the war broke out in, in 1939, just before the war, um, his friends in America said, said Dietrich, you've got to get out of Germany. You're going to get killed. So he, took a, he had a post as lecturing. He was an amazing pastor. He wrote an amazing book called The Cost of Discipleship. Folks, let me tell you, he loved that. And I'll tell you why he loved The Cost of Discipleship. It's, it's a Christian classic today still. 1939, he went to America. Got an amazing teaching post in America. Had a nice university lecturing students. Such a cushy job. You think, wow, he must be so happy. He was miserable. He said, I need to be with my people in Germany. My people are going through a terrible time. How can I go to America and live comfortably here when my people are suffering in Germany? And he left this amazing teaching post in America, he went back to Germany. And he knew his life was in danger. The Nazis didn't like him because he didn't like them. And he was actively speaking out. He was, he was, he was against the persecution of the Jews, etc., etc. He was speaking out for what was right. They arrested him a year and a half before the end of the war. He ended up in a concentration camp. And literally two weeks before the end of the war, He just finished preaching in the concentration camp, morning sermon. The Nazi guards came and took him, and they took him away to be executed. 
And I, and I was reading this morning just about those moments when um, his, his friend that was in that service, when he left, the last words he said to his friend as the Nazi guards took him away at the end of the church service that Sunday morning, he said this, this is the end. For me, the beginning of life. This is the end. He knew. For me, the beginning of life. He lived with the reality of eternity in Christ is life evermore. And then when he, when he was going to be executed, Eberhard Berthiger, a student and friend of Bonhoeffer, wrote this. I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer kneeling on the floor praying fervently to God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed. So devout and so certain that God heard his prayers. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed a few steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. In almost 50 years that I have worked as a doctor, I have never seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. He wrote the book, The Cost of Discipleship, folks, and he lived it. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, he said Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. Why did I say that? You know, he went to back to Germany. And he wasn't just writing and speaking out and against the atrocities of the Nazi regime. He got a group of men together in a discipleship training school and he was investing his life in there. He was making disciples. And his one friend came to him one time and said to him, Dietrich, why are you spending all your time with these few guys yeah, in this little place, and he, it was kind of underground. When I say underground, not physically underground, it was hidden from the Nazis in the country somewhere. And he said, these friends said, you're wasting your time, and we've got to change the world. You can't just spend your time investing in these young people. And Dietrich took his friend outside, and across the river, you could see there was a, there was a Nazi training camp, military training camp. And there were the Nazis doing whatever they're doing, training. And he said to his friend, he said, unless we train men and women to have a greater commitment to Christ and His kingdom than those Nazis are training their soldiers, we will never change the world. Unless we train people to have a greater commitment than those Nazis, we'll never change the world. Folks, you know the world we live in. I want to I share something here I heard from, from Emma and Emma's husband's there. Emma's at the back there. 2021, we had widespread looting across, across KZN. And I heard from Emma. Emma teaches in Edendale. After the looting, she, she asked a class. It's quite a big class. I don't know how many kids in the class. How many of you were involved in the looting? How many of you went with your parents to go to Bradlow's and help yourself to a bed and a fridge and a big screen TV? And Emma said... Most of the children put up their hands. Folks, these are junior school children, I understand. Folks, what is this generation being taught? They are being taught that crime pays. That being a crook, being a skabanger, being a skellum is the way you get ahead in life. 
Students come to university here and they find no problems with cheating on the exams and tests. And getting somebody else to put in their student number and write the test for them and give the guy a couple of hundred rand and let them write the test. What are we teaching this generation? What are we doing about it? Where are the Googlers of this world who say, I'm going to invest in the young people. I'm going to put Christ inside their hearts. I'm going to put God's truth in their hearts. I'm going to put faith in their hearts. I'm going to teach them to turn to God wholeheartedly and turn to everything, turn from everything that God turns evil. Where are those people? Where are the people who will make disciples? Bob Gilliam said this, The church has been duped or tricked into substituting quality of church programs for quality of individual Christ-likeness. We want to have the slickest church program, you know, with beautiful, you know, worship band. We want to impress you with how good we are doing church. Instead of building God inside of you, building greatness inside of you, seeing Christ being formed inside of you. That's what Paul the Apostle said. He said, I give myself that Christ may be formed inside of you. I'm glad you impressed with our amazing worship team. Did you see, you know, all the, 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 the drummers and the, and the guitarists and everything? Are you impressed? Folks, I'm telling you, we are investing. We are committed to investing and building Jesus inside of people. So I'm sorry that we don't have the most impressive worship band. But we are committed to investing in people's lives. He said this, Bob Gilliam said this, the result is that we have too many churches and too few disciples. Bill Hull said this, Christianity without discipleship causes the church to become just like the culture, and that's when the church loses its authority and its power. We're not meant to be just like culture. We are not meant to encourage our children when there's looting. Hey boy, come, let's go help ourselves to a big screen TV down at game. I'm like, Jonah, you are not going near game right now. We are praying for the authorities to intervene and arrest the skibangers that are stealing big screen TVs from, from game. Amen? Discipleship is not just one of those things that the church does. It is what the church does. So there we go. Okay, guys, you're all fired for discipleship. This little saying, discipleship is relationship with a purpose. Or we're a family on a mission, okay? I want to unpack, firstly, this concept of relationships. And I want to go to an interesting place. Now, I know, guys, just, okay. It's kind of like, Pastor, you're putting a heavy on me here, okay? Okay, I'm glad you're not taking your kids looting, okay? So just relax. I know you guys wouldn't do that, okay? But, relationships with a purpose. I stumbled across something that is quite amazing. It was a study done by Harvard University. And I'm going to put the, just, just click, and there's the picture. This is a book. Just click there. Just wait. Don't click on. So this is a book called The Good Life, written by these two guys. Uh, it's Robert Waldinger. He's a medical doctor. And Mark Schultz, he's, a, he's got his PhD. Okay. So those two guys wrote this book, The Good Life. And what this book is uh, Harvard University, which is one of the top universities in America, has been doing a study for 85 years. Yeah, not your neighbor, 85 years, okay? It's the longest study that we're aware of. Um, and what is the study about? If you just click, it'll come up the top there. The Harvard Study of Adult Development, which uh, has been investigating the human experience since 1938, 
now in a new book. And what's the book about? The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. Okay? So I'm going there. Now, we started the discipleship. Now we're on happiness. You guys will think, oh, the pastor's lost the plot. We've got a plot. We're going somewhere. Trust me with us. Okay? The world's longest scientific study of happiness. So let me tell you about this study. So this book came out on the 10th of January. And it's, I've, I've seen a lot of videos and info about it on social media. And I've looked at videos about it. Folks, the pursuit of happiness is part of the American dream. If you haven't heard of the American dream, you should. The pursuit of happiness. Americans are pursuing happiness. I just want to tell you. And listen, as Christians, we need to just get a handle on this. Because I want to submit to you. God, it's not that God is an unhappy God and God wants you to be unhappy and miserable your whole life. Okay? But let's just get a handle on what is happiness, how do we get happiness, etc. And this is what the study is about. So what these guys did. So um, the guy at the top, he's the director of the program, the fourth director in 85 years. In 1938, they selected a group of first-year students at Harvard University. They were all guys back then. Okay? They subsequently extended the program to the guys' wives. And when they did, the wives all said, why did you take so long? Of course, we want to be part of this program. Okay? And, what, and then at the same time, they, there was another study at Harvard. They were investigating inner city boys in Boston. Boston is where Harvard University is. And these boys were down and out boys living in like apartment blocks that didn't have any hot or cold water in. Like really, the, the, so it's kind of you got the full spectrum of, of, of the community of 1938. They're studying them. They had, I think, 734 boys in this program. And the deal was every two years, they posted them a questionnaire to ask about their life. Every five years, they did a face-to-face -face interview with these boys, guys. As they, and every 10 years, they got their full medical records from their doctors. Today, 85 years, years later, out of the 734 boys, only 60 of them are still alive. They're all in their 90s. No figure. Okay? So, but what's incredible is, as they said, you know, so often we... It's hard to take a picture of somebody's life because the, the, the essence of a picture, it's a moment in time. I get you there when you're 20, 40, 60, 80. But, and the problem with when you ask an old guy about his life, you forget so much of your life. What they have, literally, they say they have banks of records of what people have said every two years about their life. They have a video of over 700, now it's over 2,000, they've extended to the children of these guys, of over 2,000 people, what they say every two years about their lives. Amazing study. Now, uh, Dr. Waldinger, the top there, one interview I, I, I looked at, he spoke about happiness. And, and he shared this, that in psychology, if you go to the next slide, in psychology, there are two popular conceptions of happiness, hedonic and eudaimonic. Okay, if you haven't heard of those words, nor would I. Okay, I'm going to unpack it for you, so don't stress. Okay, I'm not, uh, I didn't know this either. Okay, firstly, what is hedonic happiness? Hedonic happiness is achieved through experiences of pleasure and enjoyment, happenings. So, for example, you get good marks in your maths test. I'm happy. I passed. I did well. Okay? You got, had a great day at the beach. You're happy. You watched a good movie. You're happy. Your soccer team wins. You're happy. Okay? Those are momentary pleasures that bring us happiness. We all experience this. If you are human, you've had that form of happiness sometime. Okay? So, uh, but for, 
it's very interesting. In America, American culture, hedonic happiness is often championed as the ultimate goal. Okay? Want to party, want to do things like, always want to just uh, the next kick. And, and we kind of think that's the only way of happiness. Now, I'm going to take it two steps further. The first step is this. Eudaimonic is achieved through experiences of meaning and purpose. And where does this come from? Aristotle was actually a Greek philosopher. And hedonic happiness, people thought, well, you know, to be happy, you must always have these things that are always amazing. You're always winning. You're always on top of the world. And life's not like that. We're not always on top of the world. We don't always win. Our team doesn't always win. You know, speak to Babalwa. Maybe pray for Babalwa. Okay. <laughs> a private joke. She won tickets yesterday to the Sharks game. She was meant to be at training here yesterday. But her team didn't win. So... You know, pray for a happiness right now, okay? <laughs> so, 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 Aristotle said this. He said, guys, as humans, we are not just animals that just live in the moment. An animal hasn't got that much memory from past and doesn't really plan for the future. They very much live in the moment. So with eudaimonic happiness, Aristotle said... There are greater motivations in us that go beyond just uh, momentary pleasures that give us delight. He said, when you, for example, we've got some students over here. You guys are living for something greater than maybe where you're staying or doing right now. You are pushing towards a qualification that will unlock a career path that will be able to in, you, to enable you to fulfill God's call on your life. And so you are studying late at night. For example, you know, may not be happy at 1 a.m. when you are studying for your maths exam, but there's a sense of purpose and meaning that I'm doing this because I need this degree to unlock a career path that will enable me to fulfill God's call upon my life. Amen? And so... We often, I, as parents, we often sacrifice for our children. We give up momentary pleasures, things we'd like to do. We may not go and watch the Sharks game because my kid is not well. I need to be home. Well, I've been away all week. I need time with my children. I can't go to the Sharks game. There's a greater purpose because I'm investing in my child. I have a limited time. Life goes by so fast. I'm his dad. I need to input into my child's life now. There's a greater purpose and meaning. And so you sacrifice going to the shark game, even if Baboa offers you free tickets, because you need time with your kid, okay? There's a sense of purpose, and I want to submit to you folks, when we talk about uh, hedonic happiness and eudaimonic, it is both in the God zone, amen? God can give you delight, and I want to unpack this, and we're going to unpack this in, in a hedonic way. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Even though you're going through tough times, you have amazing joy. You have the peace of God deep inside your soul. You are content. There's a deep sense of well-being in your soul despite different circumstances. It's like, hey, God is doing it for me. Amen. The sense of purpose that God has called me to this, this, this career path, this study. I know this is God's will for my life. That is eudaimonic happiness. There's a deep sense of God has led me. God has got me on this path. I'm in the center of His will. That's eudaimonic happiness. So I want to say, just let's not just think, oh, psychologist, oh, no, it can't be God. I see God in all of this. I see God giving hedonic, and I see God giving eudaimonic happiness for us. Absolutely. But look at this. In pursuit of happiness, a recent survey of millennials asking them what their most important life goals were. 
Over 80% said that getting rich was a major life goal. And another 50% of those same young adults said that another major life goal was to become famous. To become rich and famous. <laughs> These guys have been watching too many soapies, don't you think? This study uh, that's in, the, in this book, The Good Life, that we're looking at, they had, out of these 700 men that they started the study with, they looked at, they looked for two people that were particularly happy and particularly unhappy. And, 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 and their definition of, of happiness, let me just say, is in terms of a sense of deep fulfillment and meaning uh, and satisfaction with their life. Okay? And they found one guy who was successful by the worldly standards. He had lots of money. He reached the pinnacle of his career. He was, he, he, he was the top of his company, etc. And yet he was the most unhappy person on, in this 85-year in this survey. They found another guy who by worldly standards was, was not very successful, but had phenomenal happiness. Let me tell you about them. The guy that was very rich, very successful, I read, reached the top of his career, he was a very successful lawyer in America. He had gone through three different marriages. He was, in his 50s, incredibly lonely. He was totally estranged from his children from his first and second marriage, because now the third wife doesn't get on with the children from his first and second, so he was totally cut off from all his family. He was lonely and miserable by the time he was in his 50s, and it didn't change until the end of his life. But he had megabucks. He drove the fancy car. He had the big house. He was the boss with a, you know, that big title on his, on his door and his desk. Everybody said yes and no to him at work, etc. He called the shots. He was successful, but miserably unhappy. And he had money, folks. 80% of millennials think having lots of money is going to make them happy. This study does not prove that. You know, another interesting thing about this study, out of the Harvard graduates who, who were set up for success, they were going to get good jobs and make lots of money, and the down-and-out dropout boys from the inner city, looking at their lives over 85 years, there was no correlation between money and happiness. The Harvard boys were not happier because they made more money than the kids from the inner city. And by the way, many of the kids from the inner city made it and were very wealthy in the end. It, you don't need a degree to, to get very wealthy, by the way, just saying that on the side. Okay. So, this lawyer was contrasted with this other guy who was one of the happiest guys in the survey. He was a teacher. He was a teacher in a small school in a small town who stayed there for many years. He was greatly beloved in the school, in his community. He was valued. He was honored. He was respected. He had a deep sense of eudaimonic happiness, i.e. he was inputting into young people. Young people's lives were being changed through his input, etc. He's one of the happiest people in the whole survey. Did he have a fat salary? No. Did he drive a big car? No. Did he have a big fancy house? No. Was he happy? Off the charts. And I want to unpack some of the other things they said. I mentioned the millennials, though. You know, I, I got a scratch in me, and, and I'm going to share this scratch with you. How many of you know what a millennial is? Tell me, how old are the millennials? I, I, this thing is, has been a bit of a mystery to me. I'm giving you, this is for free, okay? You don't have to, you, don't have to, uh, um, you know. This is, 
I, I thought this was interesting to find out which generation you are. You get the baby boomers, Gen Xs, millennials, Gen Zs, and Gen Alphas. Okay, and there we go. Okay, if you were born between 1946 and 64, you're a baby boomer. 65 to 80, you're a Gen X. Okay, Gen Xs say, Homer! <laughs> Why well, no many, not many Gen Xs here? Okay, okay, millennials, this was the group that want to be rich and famous, okay? 81, you born 81 to 96, okay? In other words, you're between 27 and 42 years old, okay? And then the Gen Zs, interesting that um, this, this outpouring that has been happening, happening at Asprey is amongst the Gen Zs. They, they talk about the 25 and unders, okay? It's basically, if you know at university now, you should be sort of in the Gen Z. You know, if you're a millennial student, okay? We'll, we'll, we won't tell anybody, okay? <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, okay? You should be finished by that time, okay? But this outpouring at Asprey has been with the Gen Zs. No flash, they just want authentic sincerity, no emotion, well not, not no emotion, but not, not, not loud and whatever, it's authentic, it's deep, sincere, they just want the real deal, Gen Z. And Gen Alphas, you should be in children's church, okay? There we go, okay, Gen Alpha, they're coming, watch out for Gen Alpha. Okay, but let's go on. My question was, we're looking at happiness here, is happiness biblical? You're allowed to be happy as a Christian? Let's look. Matthew 5, verse 3 to 11 is the Beatitudes, where Jesus declares nine blessings over people in different areas. He says it nine times if you just click. The strong, that word blessed, in most Bibles use the word blessed. That word blessed in the strongest dictionary is the Greek word makariso, okay? And it means to be blessed, which is a good translation for that word, but it also means to be fortunate or happy. Oh, Jesus wants you to be happy? Absolutely, my man. I'm so glad you asked. In Matthew 5 verse 3, I'm, this is the Amplified Bible, how the Amplified takes that word makarizo, which is usually translated blessed, and it says this, blessed, in brackets, happy, underline, to be envied and spiritually prosperous with life joy and satisfaction in God's favor and salvation regardless of their outward condition. Regardless of the outward condition, okay, that's eudaimonic happiness. Because hedonic is something great has happened, so now you're happy. If you have a deep sense of well-being despite your circumstance, that's eudaimonic. Okay? The next verse, verse 4 in the Amplified says, Blessed and enviably happy with a happiness produced by the experience of God's favor. The experience is hedonic happiness. There are moments you overcome with God's joy, God's peace, a sense of just well-being, His love. You can be overcome. By, that's hedonic. It's like, oh God, you're loving me so much. I'm, it's absolutely in the God zone, okay? God's favor is specially conditioned by the revelation of His matchless grace. Now, grace there, it would be eudaimonic. In this verse, I see this is a happiness that's hedonic and eudaimonic. The next one, verse 5. Blessed, happy, blithesome, whoo, joyous, spiritually prosperous, with life, joy, and satisfaction in God's favor and salvation, regardless of the outward conditions. That's eudaimonic again. It's a great sense of uh, well-being deep in our souls. This is God's will for you and me. 
Amen? How about the word for peace in the Bible? Next slide. The word for peace in the Bible is the Hebrew word shalom. Okay? It was a greeting in Hebrew times. If you were a Hebrew guy, you wouldn't say good morning, you would say shalom. How do you shalom your neighbor? Shalom, Walter. Okay. <laughs> shalom, Karen. Shalom, guys. Ephesians 1 verse 2. Paul the Apostle, when he wrote uh, uh, many of his letters, he did this greeting, grace and peace. He took the greeting that the Greeks used to give, which was charis, which was grace, favor, unmerited blessing upon your life. That's how the Greeks used to greet. And then he would take the word shalom, which is simply translated peace. But if you just think it's peace, you're minimizing the depth of this word. Okay? So usually, uh, Paul in Ephesians 1 verse 2 said, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. The Passion Bible says this, May God Himself, the Heavenly Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, release grace over you and impart total well-being into your lives. What I've underlined there, total well-being, is the word peace. And that is what the Hebrew word for shalom means. Total well-being to you. Amen? Total well-being to you. And in the, in the notes it says, or peace. The Hebrew concept of peace means much more than simply tranquility. So here we see Jesus pronounces blessing over them that includes happiness. Paul greets them with this word grace, favor, and peace, which means complete well-being to your soul. Does God want you to be happy? I kind of think so. I kind of think so. So just in case you think, no, 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 we've got to go somewhere else for this stuff, okay? Earn a million bucks or be famous. There's other ways. So let's go back to the book, The Good Life. Lessons from the world's longest scientific study on happiness. What makes a life fulfilling and meaningful? Relationships. This is their enduring finding the people that were the happiest. That rich guy who had lots of money, top of his company, but three marriages and didn't know his kids. His problem was he was incredibly lonely. The teacher who taught his whole life in a small school, beloved by his community, respected, honored, deep sense of making a difference in people's lives, phenomenally happy. The difference is relationships. The stronger our relationships, the more likely we are to live happy, satisfying, and overall healthier lives. Now guys, you think this, yeah, this is nice. They studied over 700 people over their lifetime, folks. Do you know what the impact on lifespan is? Your relationships. So they found the happiest people had the closest, warmest, connected relationships in their lives. Whereas they found this, lonely isolated people on average lived 10 years less than people who had rich healthy relationships 10 years folks this could cost you 10 years of your life they further they further found that during midlife you know during midlife you know your 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 tummy just sort of wants to go whoop i don't know if you guys have noticed that you know i i, I I'm going to keep it in, okay? <gasps> it doesn't happen to me yet. <gasps> Can you see? <gasps> now, 
in midlife, it's not just that. There are many ailments. You start to get problems with your blood sugars. You start to get um, 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 problems with high blood pressure. All those things that start to kick in midlife, they found that if you are unhappy, if you're isolated, those things hit you much harder, much faster, and health problems. Now, remember, they got these people's health records every 10 years. People's health declined in midlife much quicker if they were disconnected, lonely, and, and, uh, and, and didn't have a good relationships. So I'm going to give you three. Now, again, we're coming to this thing of relationships. Social connections are good for us, and loneliness kills. Literally, it could cut 10 years off your life. People who are more socially connected to family, to friends, to the, communi to the community are happier they're physically healthier, they live longer than people who are less connected. People who are more isolated than they want to be, and I want to say more than they want to be, very often circumstances happen. You know, you go through a hectic divorce and you're cut off from family. I, I, and, and I mean, I, I chatted to recently to another family that have, they had a big family feud and they totally cut off from the one side of the family. It's not always you want this, but these things can happen, okay? find they are less happy, their health declines earlier in midlife, their brain functioning declines sooner, and they live shorter lives than people who are not lonely. Point two, keeping your close relationships closer. It's not the number of close friends you have. You know you get extroverts and introverts, and extroverts have lots of friends, and introverts have a few. It's not, that's not the factor, it's the quality of the relationships. You could just have a few good quality relationships that are incredibly significant, and increase your happiness quite significantly. It's not the number of close friends you have or whether or not you're in a committed relationship, but the quality of those close relationships matter. Living in the midst of conflict is bad for your health. And living in the midst of good warm relationships is protective. They literally found, I mean they said in an interview, he said, for some sometimes living in a I mean the Bible speaks about, you know, um, you know, a bickering relationship, etc., in Proverbs, living in a, in a very antagonist relationship, they literally found, is worse for your health than actually if that relationship ended. I'm not saying end the relationship, I'm just saying that's what they found, okay? Point three, good relationships don't just affect our bodies, they protect our brains. Before I read this, they found, and, and this was also in the interviews, they found this is the deal. If you have close relationships, for example, you come home from work and you had a rough day at work. You know, a couple of deals went south and your boss shouted at you and you found out that you're not getting a raise and you're actually getting a decrease and, you know, you're arriving home and you are, like, stressed. They found if you have somebody that you can just talk to, they don't need to be a registered counselor or psychologist, just somebody to talk to. They found that there's an unburdening that happens and you actually go to sleep feeling happier than you did when you came home. If you came home and you had nobody to talk to, you carry that stress and that angst with you. If you don't have anybody to talk to, it doesn't mean you have to be married. Let me just say that. And, and your, your anxiety levels just stay high and you actually stay quite depressed for much longer. The same study also showed that being in a securely attached relationship to another person in your 80s 
is protective, that the people who are on, in relationships where they feel they can count on the other, other person in times of need, those people's memories stay sharper for longer. You know, when you get older, you kind of get a bit forgetful, you know, etc. If you have close relationships where you can engage with, they find that you, your mental capacity stays much sharper, much with it. Folks, this is quite overwhelming. You know, so when we say, when we come and we say, okay, we believe in relationships with a purpose. You know, this, this, next slide, this, this could just add 10 years on your life. This could affect your mental capacity quite radically. You know, we put up a slide for connect groups over there, and I'm like, Google, <laughs> maybe we should say, join a connect group. You could live 10 years longer. <laughs> I want to say, and, and I know I, I started with a heavy, and now this is kind of, we're going, we're going light here, and, and, I, and, I, and I did this, this intentionally. Folks, relationships are life-giving. I want to finish with this story of... Um, the, the head of uh, Focus on the Family, um, uh, Dobson, uh, James Dobson. James Dobson, I mean, he's, he's not in ministry, he's elderly. I, I don't think he's passed on, but a few years ago, James Dobson had a health scare. And uh, the doctors, I think it was something to do with his heart. And the doctors were really worried about his health. He was in intensive care. And the doctors literally told his family, guys, you better come soon. We don't know if he's going to pull through with this thing. And the family came, and they were all around his bed. And it was one of those moments like we kind of yeah to say goodbye to, to dad and grandpa, etc. And James Dobson wrote this afterwards. And James Dobson was a very successful, when he was a student, he was a very successful tennis player. He's got, he's got many awards for, for tennis, etc. He's got, you know, he started focusing the family and ministry, to, and, and he's got all kinds of awards, etc. He said, in that moment... He said, the thing that mattered to me most were the people that I loved, and he went on to say, and the people that loved me. He said, I didn't care, care about my tennis awards and my accolades for starting this amazing ministry. He said, I just want the people that I loved and the people that loved me around me. And this ties in with we, what we are saying here. Folks, relationships will have a radical impact on your life. These guys who wrote the study, they said, they said, I want to finish with just one or two thoughts. They said that your relational capacity in life can increase and decrease just like your physical strength and health. You know, you could hit a midlife wobble, you know, where kind of, you know, everything wobbles. But then you kind of pull yourself towards yourself and you decide, we're going to do some exercise here. And you can physically increase your physical strength from, you know, at 45 where, you know, you can't run a kilometer to, you know, at 55 you're running marathons. We're not looking at anybody around here. Okay, but anyway, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But your physic, you can improve your physical health and capacity, okay? I want to say this, folks. They found that your relational capacity, your ability to build relationships, can also decrease or increase. You, it, it, is, it, is a, it is something that you can train and improve your body to relate to people. They found there was one guy, he was very lonely, he was in his 70s lonely. I don't know his whole story, you know, maybe he lost his wife and family, etc. 
And he decided he needed to sort out his health a little bit and he joined a gym in America somewhere. I don't know the details. What he, he was just trying to work on his health, but when he joined the gym, he met up with a whole bunch of guys who were his similar age in a similar stage of life, i.e. kind of lost loved ones, etc. And he got in that group and he connected and found life again and found happiness in his 70s. And stories abound of these 700 guys where, whatever, they'd lost a loved one, they remarried, they found happiness again. Just because you've had a relational setback, people have disappointed you, people have, people have burnt bridges with you, etc. You don't have to stay like this. The good news that if you listen to, when I listen to it, they said the good news, you don't have to stay in a backwater of isolation and loneliness. Get out of that hole connect with people. I nearly feel we should put up the connect group slide again, okay? We have connect groups for everybody, okay? Connect with people. And you can train yourself to connect better and improve relational connectedness. And the impact is you will be happier. Could just add 10 years to your life. And, 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 and I want to I wanna just maybe finish with the last slide. We often say this, that discipleship is relationship. Jesus said in Matthew 4.19, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And I want to come back, if you just click. And from this, we often say, you've heard us say, Jesus called us, the three F's to discipleship, follow Jesus, fish for men, and fellowship. On the left there, the three F's. But this is a call to three relationships. It's a call to relationship with Jesus. When we say follow Jesus, this isn't mechanically, beep, 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 Jesus said go there. This is walking in intimate communion and relationship where you talk daily to Jesus and He talks to you and you read His Bible and, it's, and the Lord speaks to you and you sense His leading and you have a deep sense of oneness with God, intimacy with God. God is with you as you're driving to work, as you go into that board meeting, as you are drawing up that contract. You, he's highlighting, He's leading things to you. You're walking with Jesus. Amen? It's relationship with you, relationship with unbelievers. Please don't cut off people who don't know you, Jesus in your life. And finally, relationship with spiritual family. This is what, I, this is what I wanna, I'm, I'm emphasizing, that discipleship is three relationships. It's not just come and hang and we're going to you know, chat about the Bible, etc. We want to help you in your relationship with Jesus. We want to help you be, you, you be more effective in reaching unbelievers. You know the difference over here? When Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, you know how radical that was from other rabbis of his day? He was known as a rabbi as a teacher. So it was very well known that rabbis had disciples. They had followers. So each rabbi would have a couple of guys who would hang with and he would teach them. But what Jesus did that was so different from the other rabbis, he told his disciples to reach other people. You weren't allowed to do that with other rabbis. The rabbi would call you, you know? I'm the holy rabbi. I'm like, hmm, on a spiritual, be thou my disciple. And thou, thou art not spiritual enough for my discipleship group. Thou shall be shunned from my discipleship group. Ones, come here, hither. Okay? Jesus did the radical thing. He said, this is not just for you guys. This is for the whole world. It's for the whole world. The church is the only organization that exists for non-members. Folks, you know these empty chairs here? We keep them for your unsaved family and friends. Okay? Please, don't disconnect from people who don't know Jesus. 
be salt and light to them. Don't let them, don't let bad company corrupt good character, okay? You influence them. God wants you to have a relationship. Those who don't know you, you are the light, you're the hope of the world to them. Amen. It's so important. We are called to relationships. Relationships are life. Amen. Can I pray for you? Can we, can we do this? And if you feel uncomfortable, you don't have to do this. Can I ask you to stand and we just hold hands? We're talking about relationships. Relationships is connection. Now, we do have sanitizer at the back afterwards if you're a bit stressed about this. Okay? If you really don't want to hold hands, you don't have to. Please don't feel pressure. But we're talking about relationships and relationships are connection. I need a... Oh, no. Amu. Amu. Stretch your hand this way. Can we just make a circle this way? Yeah. Okay, I know I'm not in the camera. Sorry, I'm going to just get in the camera here. Okay. Lord Jesus, as we are just doing the prophetic act of holding hands, Lord, Lord, we, we are doing this as a recognition that, Lord, you've made us to live in relationship, to live connected. And God, I pray over every single person here over our relationships, Lord. Divine protection of our relationships. Lord, give us wisdom to know how to invest in these relationships. Lord, that they would be life-giving, that they would be a blessing. May we be a blessing to our loved ones, Lord. May we not just look at what we can get from relationships. May we be givers. May we invest in our loved ones, Lord. As Jesus, you came, you gave your life, Lord. May we invest in our loved ones. And Lord, I pray if there's been broken relationships, Lord, either restore them or bring other relationships into that space to fill the God-given hole, the God-given space that we have for relationships, Lord. God, may we live connected. May we live in the kind of community that you've called us to live in. God, improve our relational ability just like our physical strength can increase through exercise we can develop our muscles develop our relational muscles lord develop our ability to live connected in jesus name i pray and the people of god said amen amen, amen. god bless you guys we hope you've enjoyed this message for more information please visit our website at www at hispeoplepmb.co.za and for more of our messages visit our youtube and soundcloud channels as well as other podcast platforms if you would like to contact us please email us at hispeoplepmb at gmail.com or send a message to 061-452-0877 we hope to see you soon god bless you